You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Konnichiwa, everybody. Welcome to Abakabu Cafe, the English language Kimagure Orange Road podcast. My name is Jason Almy, and I host this lovely show. Hopefully, this isn't your first episode, but whether it is or isn't, thank you very much for tuning in. Today, we are going to discuss TV episode 40 entitled First Dream of the New Year Kaiju Jingoro Strikes Back. Now, thanks to Pacific Rim, people in the West at least, English-speaking folk, now broadly know more or less what a kaiju is. We can actually use that word in English sentences, much the way we use words like samurai. Of course, have a Japanese language origin, but still nonetheless have a meaning in English. You can use samurai in a sentence, and most English-speaking peoples will understand what it is that you're referring to with that word. Kaiju, maybe not on the level of samurai yet, but again, thanks to uh, Pacific Rim and uh, Godzilla films and the growing popularity of anime, um, broadly in the West, a term like kaiju is now more familiar to people, so we can use it in the title of this episode. This episode originally aired on January 11th of 1988. It was directed by Shinbayashi Minoru, who has directed a number of episodes to date. He started with episode eight, which was the Shutter Chance at the Beach episode. He directed episode 13, which was Shikaru's Super Transformation episode. He directed episode 17, which is the one where Kasuga sweats profusely in the public library while ostensibly on a study date with Ayukawa, and it's really disgusting why you would sweat that much in a library while you're on a date seems completely inappropriate. But then he also directed episode 25, which is the one where Kasuga hypnotizes himself for the first time, becomes kind of a playboy type. And most recently, Shinbayashi directed episode 32, which was the time slip that occurred on Kasuga's birthday, resulting in two Kasugas when the original Kasuga goes back to the past and encounters himself. 
Today's episode was written by none other than Tarara Kenji. Tarara is up to 20 episodes now, and most recently, we discussed last week's episode, which was the um, hypnotizing Ayukua, that was Costco's Risky New Year. That was uh, written by Tarara Kenji as well. And I got to say, my first time watching through the Orange Road episodes, this one confused the f*** out of me as a young man in the early to mid-90s watching this on a fan sub video. I liked it. I liked this episode, but it, it seemed kind of out of the blue. Given the episode title, you kind of assume what you're seeing is taking place in a dream. Like, this is Kasuga's dream. So even as the episode opens, you kind of think, maybe we're looking at somebody's dream here. And there's no real frame story. Uh, there's no um, Kasuga staying up late watching a, an old movie on TV and then falling asleep and, and having this dream that's a mishmash of elements of his life as well as uh, films that were undoubtedly popular in the 60s and 70s. There's no frame story. We don't get that. So we don't, we don't see him falling asleep and, and then having this dream. We're just given that indication by the title of the episode. The characters are just plopped into this strange narrative. And I think that's something that I liked about it. It was just episode opens and it's all the people that we're familiar with as viewers, but they're all doing different things in, in different contexts. And, and it was just kind of this fun change of pace that really seemed kind of random. There was no lead up to this, no build up to this. And it is very dreamlike in that sense with the absurd narrative elements it's not very uh, experimental visually. We'll get to an episode that is quite experimental visually um, in terms of visual and film language. This one, pretty standard film language, but but it is still kind of dreamlike in, in, in its absurdity because we've all had those dreams that really don't make any sense when you look back on them. But when you're in the dream, you're buying into the silliness. And I thought, if we're looking at a dream, if we're supposed to be looking at a dream, it's a weird opening. It's kind of an interesting creative choice because we be begin with an intertitle card that briefly describes the genesis of Tap Gun. Why would a dream start out with a title card? That's an artifact of cinema. But that's important to mention because that is an artifact of cinema, a title card. That's something you see in movies. Furthermore, the intertitle contains English text, which was subtitled in Japanese for the Japanese audience, which makes it seem like an old American film that was imported into Japan. And what follows is a montage of aircraft imagery that begins to establish the visual motifs for this dream narrative, if it really is a dream, hint, hint. The year of this dream narrative is established to be in the 1960s, 196X. It would be sometime after 1964, as that was the year that Tap Gun was created. So these events cannot have occurred prior to 1964. And we already see our first pop culture reference to the Tom Cruise film Top Gun. And this episode also gives the filmmakers an opportunity to incorporate more action-oriented film language. There's uh, rapid uh, point-of-view imagery from the cockpit as the jets initially open fire on Monster G. And there's a rousing score appropriate for dramatic, high-stake action, as opposed to the background music usually heard in Orange Road being lighter and more befitting of comedy.
compare that score with something like this. See what I mean? Much lighter, much more befitting of the typical tone of an Orange Road episode. And this episode is rife with pop culture references. This episode is clearly an homage to the films that these filmmakers would have grown up watching in the 60s and 70s. It seems like something that would have been on late night TV, monster movie. Um, there are references to Top Gun with the Tap Gun thing, as I mentioned, and Godzilla films, kaiju in general. There's even links to more recent American stuff like Pacific Rim. So this episode kind of reaches forward too. And then there's uh, some sci-fi elements to it with the the Black Fighter, uh, kind of similar to Macross or other space operas. There seems to be a whiff of that with the super dimensional Comet Pegasus Major League Attack number one shit that Kosaka pulls near the end of the episode. It doesn't make any sense and it has a super long name, but the reference is there. Now, if this episode is a dream, it functions as wish fulfillment. So it must be Kosaka's dream. I mean, he shows up, dicks all the way out. Kosaka seems like a total badass this whole episode. He's just this badass fighter jet mercenary from America. So he's super cool. Also, Black Fighter would be my new porn name if it didn't also kind of sound racist. I mean, it could be a crime fighter who is a black person, that's not racist, but it could be a person who fights against black people or black culture, and that would be pretty racist. So um, I doubt that the filmmakers intended for this to be a statement on race. I think it was just a reference to the color of the jet, but it did look pretty fucking cool. Ayuko and her team are flying these kind of normal jets, but Kosuka shows up and his is faster and more badass. It turns into this beam of light or goes invisible. I don't know, but it's fancy. It's really fancy. So this dream is kind of about how he sees himself. He's the star of this dream because he's the star of his own life. And he's got all the best shit and he's the biggest badass because he's the star of his own life. Also, he calls Ayukawa by her first name, Madoka claiming to be the first man she's ever had. So he and Ayukua have this romantic history in this narrative. Again, wish fulfillment that he could be the first man Ayukua ever has and that he could be so familiar with her as to call her by her first name. Kasuga is also the benefactor to this orphanage, I guess, called Orange School, which also shows that Kasuga is at heart a people pleaser, even though in most of this narrative, he's this kind of uh, heartless mercenary who's in it for himself. He's nonetheless giving over money to this school to keep it open. I mean, he must not give them that much money because they have to situate the school right underneath some train tracks, and it's a pretty ramshackle place. But nonetheless, he shows up in his convertible to show off and gives all the kids toys and stuff like that. So you still get to see kind of his softer side even in this dream narrative where he's he's this kind of heartless badass he still has this kind of soft part that people don't know about they might even keep kind of secret and it could even be wish fulfillment for jingoro in this episode because he gets to be huge and powerful and finally get some respect 
maybe wish fulfillment a little bit for Yusaku. He gets to have Shikaru when Kasuga is presumed dead. Maybe not, because I think he would prefer to have Kasuga if this was really his wish getting fulfilled. And it's even a bit of a fantasy for the twins. Manami and Kurumi get to be island princesses. They're these uh, important figures who ran away from their Pacific island and they're rescued by this giant kaiju who wants to bring them back to their to their island. And there's an interesting element of a daydream within a dream. Showing a daydream inside of a story within a story kind of makes sense. If this isn't a dream, hint, hint, it makes a little sense to show us what Shikaru is thinking. But as a dream, it would be a little bit weird to show us what Shikaru is thinking inside of Kasuga's dream, but who knows? Shikaru imagines an Umao Ushiko-style scene between herself and Kasuga, which is really kind of interesting. Umao and Ushiko do not appear in this episode, but there's still an Umao and Ushiko-style scene with Shikaru and Kasuga delivering Umao and Ushiko's signature lines to each other. Oh, Shikaru-san, so even though uh, the characters themselves don't appear, their spirit lives on in this episode. And it sort of makes sense they wouldn't appear here. They're routinely ignored by Kasuga, even as he ruins their lives at times, maybe even causing them injury, definitely flashing them his penis and testicles. But they're not on his mind enough to actually appear in his dream. Like he doesn't have enough attention for them to actually include them in his dream. If this really is Kasuga's dream. Spoiler alert, it's not. Now, this dream narrative also functions as a reflection of Kasuga's actual life and experiences in the series thus far. Like characters and situations are similar in personality traits to the normal diegetic world of Orange Road. They're all still recognizable as versions of themselves, and not just in terms of character design, hairstyles, hair colors, etc. What I'm talking about is the way they act, the way they behave, and even to some degree, their interpersonal relationships. For instance, Kasuga is not part of the established team at the beginning of this episode. He's just blowing into town and shaking up the lives of the other characters, which is like Kasuga's real life. He moved to town. He came in as an outsider. He met all of the gang there when he moved in. Also, initially, Ayukawa doesn't respond very well to his brashness. Like in episode one, when he puts out her cigarette, first using the power, and then he crushes it up with his hand. He thinks he's so cool, and then she smacks him. In this dream, she doesn't respond very well to his uh, initial attitude the cocky way that he acts at the beginning of this episode when he first appears in Japan. And just like in the real world, Ayukawa is emotionally unavailable. She maintains this emotional distance from others, but Kasuga is able to get close despite Ayukawa's prickly demeanor, just like in the non-dream world. And just like in the non-dream world, Ayukawa is more attracted to Kasuga's real side, not this badass front, that he's showing everybody. Just like in the real world, she's never very impressed when he tries to act smooth or tough. Think of an earlier episode directed by Shimbayashi, the episode where he first hypnotizes himself to be more 
decisive. But instead of becoming more decisive, he really becomes more of this playboy type. She doesn't really like him during that episode, even though everybody else seems so impressed by the way Kasuga is acting because he's being so bold and and so uh, brash. But Ayukawa, that's not what she likes about Kasuga. That's never been what she's liked about Kasuga. He doesn't have to act a certain way for her, and she can tell when he is, when he's not being authentic. In this dream world, or possibly film within a TV show world, she's not impressed with that facade either. She likes to see him open. She likes to see him vulnerable with his true feelings and his authentic self. And by him doing that, it really seems to encourage her to do the same. She feels safe with him when he's being authentic, and that allows her to open up. And really, that's the secret to Kasuga getting in close to her, whether we're talking about this um this narrative for this week, or whether we're talking about the main narrative of the Orange Road series. Like in this dream narrative, when she follows him to the Orange School, she sees him visiting all of these children with gifts, and she really seems to appreciate Kasuga's interactions with the kids. They're all being rough with him, like pulling his clothes, pulling his hair, kicking him in the knees or whatever, and she sees the way that they're interacting with him. And even though they're being kind of rough, they're horseplaying with him, They're not terrified of him. They're not running away from him. And he's not being cruel to them. She really likes the way he's getting along with other people. It shows her that there is something beyond the black fighter persona that he puts forth when they're they're at the base or whatever. She can tell that there's depth to Kasuga. And that's a turning point for her, I think, in this episode, deciding, at least within this narrative, within the narrative, she's deciding whether or not she wants to give him a chance romantically. And near the end of the episode, she says it herself in no uncertain terms. In the old days, he was a klutz, meaning he wasn't smooth, but he was genuine and he was passionate, maybe a little naive. That's Kasuga, certainly, but it's what she loved about him. Now, just like in Kasuga's real life in this episode, he has a secret identity as the black fighter. So the identity of the black fighter is not known in this dream world, this narrative within a narrative. And that's a parallel to Kasuga having to hide his ESP in the main narrative of Orange Road. And despite his bravado, Kasuga shows a real concern for Ayukawa when she's shot down as they're fighting Monster G. Now, just like in uh, real life, Hata and Komatsu are both self-serving. They still display uh, this self-interest. They want to do interviews and photography and get a scoop by interviewing the uh, Kaiju Jingaro of all things, Monster G. So they're still showing this propensity for their own normal hobbies outside of the dream narrative or the narrative within a narrative. Master is still a bartender. Kazuya is still precocious and violent towards Kasuga. Just like in the main Orange Road narrative, Kasuga Takashi notices that Kasuga Kyosuke pays him no heed, which is kind of similar to how his paternal advice is dismissed in the regular narrative. Kasuga Takashi is even a little pathetic, like, you guys aren't listening to me, are you? So he's in this position of authority, but he's largely disregarded by the younger characters, which is pretty similar to Waking Life. Kasuga calls... Takashi, dad, 
at the end of his briefing when he gets paid, which is a little bit breaking of character, maybe your first hint that this isn't really a dream, because presumably Kasuga would not be related to Takashi within this dream because they're playing separate characters in here, nor is Kasuga related to the twins Kurumi and Manami within the narrative within a narrative. But it is interesting that the twins still have their ESP, at least the teleportation power in the dream. They do teleport out of the bar that master works at and to Jingaro's location in order to pacify the monster and get him to leave Japan and stop wrecking shit. Also in the narrative within a narrative, Yusaku still wants to be, or at least still pretends to want to be with Shikaru, despite not knowing her in the dream diegesis. So in the dream narrative, he's not even supposed to know who Shikaru is, but he does at one point express a desire to get together with her now that Kasuga is dead, or at least when he thinks Kasuga is dead in the explosion. And it's funny in his dream, he would still prefer milk, even though like as a badass fighter pilot, he should be having some fancy cocktail or drinking some manly scotch or something, but he's actually still drinking the milk, but he pours it over ice in the whiskey glass. So it's just like he's having a scotch. You even hear the ice tinkling against the glass at one point near the end. And um, it's kind of silly. Like he should be drinking whiskey if he's this badass fighter pilot. Instead, he's having milk like a good little boy. And so importantly, Kasuga's arc in this dream narrative is that he was changed by knowing Ayukawa. By the end of the dream narrative, he's a different person. He's given up his black fighter persona. He's ready to move back to the farm and help his parents out. He's going to go live this rural life. It's the complete opposite of all the action and adventure and glamour of being the black fighter, this mercenary, but he was changed by knowing Ayuko, by witnessing her sacrifice. She inspired him to be the version of himself that she most liked. It's how he decides he wants to honor her after her sacrifice in this narrative within the narrative. The dream narrative might thus be a subconscious synthesis of Kasuga's experience since moving to town in episode one. It's the most likely significance of this episode which would otherwise be throwaway, enjoyable maybe, fun, but completely irrelevant to the actual plot of the rest of the show. And I thought it was interesting that characters openly question, why Monster G? Why are we calling him Monster G? Was there a monster A, B, C, D? Did we, we just name him with a letter of the alphabet and we were just working our way up and we've, we've hit G? But, but G is phonetically similar to the Japanese G. So it makes sense to call him Monster G as in the Roman alphabet, like A, B, C, D. Monster G, which is the first character in Jingoro's name, which is the obvious inspiration for the monster. And this episode, you know, if you're going to look at it as a dream, there's a strange combination of elements here, like they've got roller skating waitresses in a pub of all places it's kind of a i mean yeah sometimes you have roller skating waitresses at like drive ups where you're gonna stay in your car and order a burger and a milkshake but like in a pub it doesn't seem like the place for roller skating waitresses do they wear roller skates at hooters i don't think they do 
the pub interior design really doesn't look like that kind of place. It's not like this 1950s Americana style drive up burger and fries joint where you could see a waitress kind of roller skating up to your car. But this, this seems like a, a place where normal shoes would be worn by the staff. And so maybe there is a little bit of that. And there's things like Jingoro filling in for the monster, which is very dreamlike. And, um, I think the funniest joke of the episode was certainly when Shikaru says that they at the Orange School are always so grateful to Kasuga for his contributions. And that was just seconds after all the kids were opening the toys that he brought and complaining about how lame they were. Like the opposite of being grateful, right? This stuff is stupid that he brought. What the hell? Why did he bring us this shit? Narratively, this episode seems quite experimental. All the characters are removed from their standard narrative the main narrative of orange road and they are dropped into this kind of new story it's kind of absurd too like there's a giant cat attacking the city seems really kind of kooky and and so it's pretty absurd and that's even considering that this is a show about teenagers with esp as i said earlier the visuals are all pretty standard narrative building stuff the film language the semantics is all pretty standard stuff standard montage the mise-en-scene is pretty normal i mean it's it's different it's fighter jets and and aircraft carriers instead of classrooms and abacabu but but they still build the narrative visually the same way as they would in any previous episode that is in contrast to the upcoming episode that we'll be talking about in a couple of weeks the follow her to winter beach episode and that episode doesn't stray very far from the narrative standard of misunderstandings leading to Shikaru running off and Kasuga gets slapped by Ayukua. I just described several episodes of, of Orange Road. So while the, the narrative elements, the, the storyline beats of the Winter Beach episode are pretty standard visually and in the way that the, the episode is constructed in terms of film language, it's stylistically a tremendous departure. Now, this episode stylistically is not a tremendous departure, but the the narrative beats certainly are different. I mean, we got Kasuga and Ayukawa kissing at the end of the story. I mean, that doesn't happen in any previous episode. So I, I think of this episode and the Winter Beach episode as being kind of a flip signs of an experimental coin. And they're they're having some fun with Orange Road. At this point, it would seem, I mean, we're far enough along that a lot of the main narrative and relationships have been established. We've told a lot of the story, and it really felt like, even from the first time I saw this episode, that we're just deep enough into the television series that we can have a little fun and we can throw in some really random kind of one-off episodes. Because by the end of this episode, it is revealed that this was not a dream at all. Kind of a bait and switch. They tell us it's a dream at the very beginning. They fill it with absurdities, just like a dream. And then at the end, it seems to be another Hata Komatsu production, another school project, maybe. There's a lot of evidence that leads us up to this ending. But for instance, both Komatsu and Hata remind Yusaku that he doesn't know Shikaru within the context of the narrative within the narrative. They stop what they're doing, they look, and they say, but you don't know Shikaru. This slip in character on the part of all three of them 
makes it seem more like a film production. They tell Yusaku not to forget his role, his role in the film. Yusaku's sudden, complete understanding of Kaiju Jingoro's motivation is also as if he's read a script or something. He knows what's on the page. He knows what the motivation is because he's been behind the scenes. Also, there's a point where Kasuga Takashi admits that he's always wanted to say a certain line. That wouldn't be the case unless he was filming a movie. But the big one, the big reveal, is when Shikaru confronts Hata as he's filming the final shot. And we clearly see that he's holding a camera, sitting up on a ladder. A cutaway to others watching as Shikaru complains about her character's ending reveals several unnamed others working as staff on a film production. There's lights, there's mirrors. Eventually, Komatsu, Yusaku, and some of the others come into mob Shikaru, and she continues to complain. If Kasuga and Ayukua end up happily ever after, what will become of her? The ones to end up together should be herself and Kasuga, according to Shikaru. And with that, the dream metaphors are out the window. I think maybe the real metaphor is Shikaru's final lines, protesting that if Kasuga and Ayuku will end up happy together, what becomes of her, and that she and Kasuga should be the ones to get together in the end. That might actually be more of a comment on the show overall. What will become of Shikaru when the show finally ends, if Kasuga and Ayuku are the ones to get together? But like I said, it's revealed that it's not a dream at the end. Everything that I said earlier about Kasuga's subconscious dreamscape and the value that that provides the series is moot. Even if I still think it's valid as a statement from the filmmakers. Hopefully we all just enjoyed the silly fun of this episode. And speaking of silly fun, if you like that kind of thing, please head on over to patreon.com slash teamalmy. You can support Team Almy by becoming a patron. We bring you fine podcasts such as this one, but you'll also get access to our other show. That brings the silly. It's called Shit Happens When You Party Naked. It's a Patreon-exclusive show. Also, I'll send you merch. Everybody that joins the Patreon gets merch. I'll send you guys merch. And there's a bunch of bonus content coming. We're going to be doing the uh, Katsu Sand. I'm going to be filming myself cooking a Katsu Sand possibly burning myself like Freddy Krueger for the future to horrify children that come trick-or-treating at my house in future years. And I'll be doing that next weekend, the weekend after this upcoming one. Who knows when that'll be when you hear it, but the video might be up on my Patreon waiting for you. Also, I'd like to encourage you to check out Creatures of the Night. That's my other podcast that I make, and it's a kooky, paranormal weirdo we do lsd and smoke joints on the beach type podcast we talk about conspiracies and aliens and dmt and the akashic records and all sort of craziness like that so check it out i know you need more podcasts and as long as you're okay with a kooky anime from the 80s about esp you ought to be okay with aliens and bigfoot and stuff i do want to thank you very much from the bottom of my heart for listening to this episode i appreciate you I hope you'll join us again for next week. And in the meantime, let me leave you with this.